Hello. Bonjour. Bonjour. Ciao. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. We're delighted you've joined us to learn more about fertility and the latest research from highly respected and experienced experts within the industry. My name is Dave Morrill, and I'm the Director of Clinical Support at Cooper Surgical. In this episode, I'm joined by Laura Rienzi and Professor Bill Ledger. Laura is the Scientific Director of General Life IVF Network and Adjunct Professor of Biotechnology in Assisted Reproduction at the University of Urbino in Italy. Bill is Head of Obstetrics and Gynaecology and leads a fertility research group at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. In addition, he works with the City Fertility Group of IVF centres. So I'm delighted to have two such renowned and accomplished guests to talk today about the laboratory and clinical aspects of vitrification, which is central to so many aspects of assisted reproduction treatments. I'd like to um, move on, uh, if we may, to to some of the the, the, the more general topics around vitrification, um, and we might end up focusing a little bit on the lab, Laura. But um, while we're talking about oocyte uh, preservation, I, I wondered if you had any firm thoughts about. Uh, how you optimize it in terms of timing between ovulatory trigger and when you freeze and the likes. I just wondered whether you had um, ideas of what you thought was the optimal protocol in terms of timing. So um, it's incredible how much embryos and all sites are plastic, so they can adapt a lot. In fact, there's not a single lab in the world that is using the same timing. And we did a beautiful stru- uh, study showing that there is a range of time where the embryo and the oocyte uh, makes no difference in, in, the, in the quality that then you are going to rescue. Uh, what is more important is uh, the type of cryoprotectant and uh, the, vitrification, the vitrification program itself. So clearly, we should not let the oocyte getting aged. So vitrification should be performed between 37 and 38 hours after ACG or uh, ovulation induction, whatever it is. So not the timing is the moment of ovulation or induction and not the moment of egg retrieval because egg retrieval can be performed at 44, uh, 34 or 37 hours post-induction. Post so it's very important for the embryologist to keep... Um, track of the moment of induction um, uh, and the type of cryoprotectant because the majority of, of the paper of, of uh, outcomes that have been published in the literature um, has a specific combination of cryoprotectant, which is, which is propandiol and MSO. Um, so uh, we should be a very very careful in the combination of, of the cryoprotectant that is used in the lab because there are some uh, um, kits in the literature uh, in the in the market that are um, that have a different cryoprotectant mixture and this for me is uh, can have a, a dramatic effect on the results and also of course on the volume in uh, that you put on the carrier and of course it has to be as 
low as possible, but enough to cover the cell. So it's very, very important to, to take the papers, read materials and method. There are videos published on different uh, journals. There are online journals, but are video journals like Joby. You can find the videos and we have to stick to the protocol. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that. And, and um, Bill, when you're um, discussing the use of uh, vitrified um, oocytes with a patient, how do you decide how many should be warmed? Is, is it a case of warm a specific number or do you warm the whole lot, take them through to blastocyst and revitrify? I just wondered, as a clinician, what your view of that would be. So you obviously begin by collecting the data on how the oocytes were frozen and how many are frozen in one group because you can't thaw half a straw. So, you know, what, what happened when they were frozen? And, and that's pretty easy if you're collecting that information from your own centre. But these days, increasingly, people are moving eggs around from one centre to the next and from one country to the next. And so it's not always that easy to get hold of that information, but you really need to know how many you have frozen and in what batch size. Generally, I don't advise putting all your eggs in one basket to coin a phrase. It, it seems sensible to avoid the possibility of, of, of a lab error or something going wrong with the thaw process, etc. So if we had, for example, 12 or more oocytes frozen, you might suggest that we, we thaw half or a third, depending on the total number. But again, in consultation with my embryologist, and they also will have information that will be useful also needing to look at the sperm quality and what they think the likelihood is, is of a good result from the fertilization, womb's age, etc. There's a nice paper by Goldman from Catherine Rakowski's group from about 2018 that has a lovely normogram of age, number of eggs, and the chance of a live birth. And that I find useful in counseling those patients at that point um, at, about what the likelihood is of having a baby from this. So gen and generally, if we only have three or four eggs, you may just thaw them all together. But a larger number, we we may batch them up into two or three bits. And Lara, does that? I'm interested as to which comes first. Is it how many you put on the device that dictates to the clinician, or is it what the clinician does that dictates what how many other sites you would put on the device? So um, I think these. Mm, a general agreement that you should not put more than four oocytes. In my view, three oocytes are, are, are the gold standard, uh, just because you can really control the volume around the oocyte, and then you can better manage, of course, the warming cycle, deciding according to the clinician view, the patient uh, needs, how many oocytes to work. So in the net donation program, we even um, cryopreserve only two oocytes per, per carrier. And this is due to the fact that in some cases, we don't want to create ex, uh, supernumerary embryos because and in Italy, there's a lot of issue regarding uh, supernumerary embryos. And we don't want you know, to use too many oocytes that are donated and are very precious. So having three or two oocyte per straw, you can really warm the, the correct number of oocyte according to uh, the patient uh, population. And if it is advanced maternal age and no, no reason to have a supernumerary embryos because there is no possibility to have a second child due to the age, then it's better to warm a low number of oocyte. And in case, just warm others if uh, no blastocysts are obtained. We can really, as I said, vitrification really helps to manage 
the management of the lab and also the number of cells that are used per patient. And it's in, in an egg donation program, we really understand how much each egg is important. It is the result of a donation and a long, a long um, medical uh, treatment. So, so I mean, every egg in the lab is important. So we need really to manage these eggs and to vitrify blastocysts one by one and also like two or three max on a, on, a, on, a, on a carrier. It really helps to use the right number of oocytes per cycle. And Laura, can I just ask you as a, as, as a question that leads on from there, do you think the quality of an embryo that is created from a cryopreserved oocyte that is thawed and then the embryo is refrozen as a supernumerary is the same as an embryo that originates from a fresh egg? Incredibly, yes. And we have data on this. I don't think that a fresh egg and a cryopreserved vitri uh, vitrified egg is the same because there is some eggs that are not going to survive, a little bit less fertilization. But once you get the blastocyst incredibly, even, re even vitrified two times, we have exactly the same euploidy rate, exactly the same implantation rate, exactly the same timing of development. So clearly, if there is a damage, it's at the very early, earlier stage. So the oocyte will not survive or will not fertilize or will degenerate after fertilization. But once it's a viable, I told you, blastocyst formation is such a powerful uh, measure of, of embryo quality. So in our egg donation program, uh, we have exactly the same results when we transfer blastocysts that has been obtained by vitrified oocyte or fresh oocytes. And even in the second cycle with single vitrification in one side and double vitrification in the other side. So I'm very confident to say that the blastocyst is really very resistant to vitrification, if it's, even if it's a, a double vitrification. Just leading on from that then, uh, Lara, what, um, what would your views be of the, the advantages and disadvantages of collapsing blastocysts before vitrification? Do you have any experience of, of that? Uh, it, it's, it's a nice story. So according to the literature, there were not really evidence that collapsing the blastocysts was, uh, uh, have any advantages. And because our survival of blastocysts was like 97.8, we were very confident not to, to make any extra manipulation to the blastocysts. But then we started a multi-center study with another group, another big group in Italy, uh, Humanitas in Milan. And we were checking implantation potential of embryos after biopsy or without biopsy. It's published on human Productions, Chimadomo, first name. And in our multivariate regression analysis, what came out is that collapsing the blastocysts in non-biopsied embryos was positively associated with survival. And we moved from 97 point something to 99. So clearly, vitrification is super efficient, even if you don't do extra manipulation. But in that study, we learned that it may add something. And the biopsy itself also helps to improve survival rate because it induced the collapsing of the blastocysts. So it's not really a prospective randomized control study. It is a multivariate regression analysis, so there may be other confounders, but what I can say is that we moved since then to collapsing the blastocysts in our lab. Laura, just, just sort of 
um, opening it up more around the vitrification technique more generally is do we have much information on uh, how our choice of uh, storage device and vessels have a, an impact on outcomes? I'm thinking of open versus closed, vapor versus liquid phase storage. I think this is for me, no? <laughs> yes, I think you so. <laughs> so. The only thing I have to do is buy all of this kit for you. <laughs> so the, the most important is the combination of cryoprotected. Okay, so this is the most important. Um, in, uh, um, then the second, uh, the second most important, for, to have a successful vitrification, the second most important uh, feature is the volume around the cell. So I don't want to talk about carrier because any carrier that allow you to have a small volume but is completely covering the cell because otherwise the cell will stick on the on the carrier and this is not something good. Uh, there is not a preferred uh, carrier. Whatever allows you to have what is needed, a small volume around the cell. So it can be different size, different weight, different plastic. I, in my experience, we don't have any any difference with a different carrier that has the same philosophy. Uh, and then, of course, is the timing. In vitrification, the timing is really very important. And it's quite funny that uh, in the last phase of a vitrification, when uh, when you put in the in the solution with a higher concentration of cryoprotectin, all the protocol says uh, not more than one minute. But one minute is important. If it's too less, if it's like 20 or 30 seconds, it's not enough to allow the cryoprotectant to enter into the cell. So at the beginning of a vitrification program, I had a very, very good embryologist that was super fast and super precise, doing everything perfect, but too fast. And we realized that her results were not better than the other one. As I said, protocols are really very important in the lab. And one minute is one minute, it's not less and not more. And this is the only really sensitive point in vitrification. And of course, the quantity, the volume that is around the cell. That cannot be really calculated in microliters, but it has to cover the cell completely, not to allow the cell to stick on the carrier. And we're, we're sort of fortunate that with uh, vitrification techniques now we see such good survival rates but presumably there are occasions when a blastocyst fails to survive and I wondered what what your thoughts are about the main reasons that embryos might not survive the, the vitrification and warming and perhaps leading on to that build should it be the lab or the clinician who informs the patient if things go uh, badly so perhaps, Laura, perhaps if you want to talk about what, why they might not survive. They might not survive uh, because they are biological cells and they're different. The permeability of the membrane can be different. We see it especially in all sites. There is quart of all sites coming from a donor, beautiful, young, fertile. I mean, the all site has not been... Uh, uh, you know, um, it, it was not, uh, nature didn't know that we would have vitrified them. So it's not, for me, the survival rate is not strictly related to the quality of the eggs. It's more related to the permeability of the membrane because this is what is needed to have a successful vitrification. Um, so, or it can be due to the operator. 
Of course, we know that in the lab we can make mistakes. We, we are working with our hands, unfortunately, still. So, and we are not working completely in a standard way. And of course, the operator can be tired, can be the last vitrification of the day, but timing cannot can sometimes not be respected. I mean, it's clearly when it's a human being doing the procedure, there may be some mistakes. So I would not associate the non-survivor rate of a blastocyst to the quality or the intrinsic quality of a blastocyst. I would be very careful counseling the patient saying, oh, your blastocyst was not good. It did not survive. I think the blastocyst did not survive. This is an extra manipulation that we had to do. And it's not for sure that it's due to the quality. It may be due to a, a specific sensitivity of, of that specific blastocyst to vitrification. And I, I don't think that these make any kind of a, a clinical conclusion. I mean, this is what we think. Also because it's not predictive for the, for the next blastocyst or for the next cycle. So, Bill, do, who, who tells the patient? Sure. Um, short answer, I think it should be the doctor. Uh, I'm very encouraging of our embryologists to communicate with patients. I think the patients really like it when they talk to the scientist who's looking after their eggs and embryos. I think it makes the embryologist's job more interesting and rewarding. They have engagement with the patient, and when they see a pregnancy, they, they know the woman and the, maybe the partner because they've spoken with them and met them. And Our embryologists come and see our patients to tell them about their embryos on the day of transfer, etc., and that's a, a really positive thing for all concerned. But I think whenever something goes wrong in an IVF cycle, whether it's the failure to thaw or failure to get the, the right number of eggs or any eggs, etc., the clinician and, and hopefully a fairly senior clinician should be the person to talk to the patient. It's reducing the risk of a ongoing problem with that couple in the long term. I think if they have a, a rapid and sensitive and sensible intervention, and we do have it in our powers usually to be able to make some kind of offer of, of a compensation in the sense of maybe we say, well, we're not admitting responsibility, but we'll, we'll maybe run another cycle for you because something went wrong we don't quite understand. For example, I do think it's the patient's expectation that their doctor talk to them when things go wrong. Maybe it's a, it's a quality thing for, for a clinic as a whole that we are available to make those phone calls. So I agree with you, although in our center, embryologists uh, communicate, communicate a lot with the patients. When uh, there is a final uh, outcome uh, as a non-transfer or no blastocyst, it is the senior doctor, which is in charge of a patient, that is going to communicate this to a patient, as well as a euploidy rate or, or whatever is really important for the management of the cycle, because of course some decision will be taken once uh, you know, the bad news is given. Sometimes the doctors ask the support of the embryologist to maybe to answer to some specific question of the lab or to see the video. We normally don't offer compensation because we think that it's not due to us, but it's it's due to the to the biology and to but uh, we have in our center a program of a discount in case of second treatment, in case of rescue. So it is planned, even if it is, if the blastocyst would have survived and not uh, uh, would not have generated uh, a pregnancy. So we try to follow the journey of the patient and also uh, from an economical point of view, because we know that the dropout is the reason why many patients have no baby after IVF. So we try to keep them committed and and this can be done, of course, 
if you have a human support, but also if you have them from an economical point of view. It's not reimbursed in Italy. Eh? In private setting, it's completely out of pocket. So it's clear that we have to have a plan to help them. The curious thing, Lara, is whenever there's a positive pregnancy test, my nurses are very happy to ring the patients. And quite often when there's a negative pregnancy test, they prefer me to do it. I, I've never worked out why that is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lara Rienzi and Bill Ledger. And thank you also to everyone who's tuned in to this episode of Fertility Insights. Please like, share, comment, and make sure to tune in to our next episode. Please note that speakers have received a fee from Cooper Surgical for participating in this podcast.